Chapter 12, Making Meaning. The opening quote for this chapter is from Buddha. Rather than continuing to seek the truth, simply let go of your views. Have you ever considered how you experience each moment or what shifts your attention from a thought, feeling, or sensation to what next catches your eye? Have you noticed that you never know from one moment to the next what you will think, feel, or sense? The truth is, we don't know what our attention will fall upon next or how we will feel in relationship to it. Despite our best efforts to create a plan for our life, we are continually surprised by what happens next. The reason for this is what inspired John Lennon to sing, Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans, because we have never been the authors of our existence or that which arises within it. Like most, I believe that I was the impetus for my thinking, feeling, and experiencing. In fact, I had never considered otherwise. But in examining the place of the present moment, I was discovering that the process was automatic. It was not that I didn't have thoughts, emotions, confusion, anger, frustration, or happiness. It's just that each showed up without my initiating them. I was not their cause, only their place. Reading this, I expect that many will object to the notion that we don't author our lives and will ask, If I'm not in charge of my life, then who is? Actually, that's a very good question, especially if before and after every thought, there is a return to some quality of silence. So, what is guiding me? Where does my guidance reside? And how does it work if I'm not authoring anything? To find the answer, we must understand that the guidance we seek is contained within each moment the truth of which is revealed only to the extent that we consciously accept its contents. This is because the true guidance of each moment is nested within it in the same way that true directions towards a true destination is inherent in both its point of origin and the path that leads us there. Being both a passionate and practical person, I'm probably no different than anyone who desires to do life better. What might be different is the idea that I must free myself from the constraints of past conditioning, trusting that the truth of the moment would guide my steps. But I had no choice in thinking this way because I was no longer interested in being guided by anything that I could not verify from the place of my present moment. Also, I was no longer willing to wait until some cosmic event occurred like enlightenment, which would reveal the big truth that would magically reconstruct my life. I was in earnest and it wouldn't do for guidance to be denied nor could it be random, reckless, or frivolous. It had to have a lawfulness that worked all of the time, just as the laws of nature that govern the forces of time and space, sound and light, energy and matter. Further, it needed to be easy to follow regardless of where I found myself. So I started at the beginning, which for me was in every now, by proceeding from the understanding that if nothing creates nor exists by itself, there must be three steps to my experience of the now, in the same way that the knower, knowing, and known participated in my experience of the moment. Regardless of how we look at the world, all of us know that everything has a beginning, middle, and end. We observe that our days, weeks, and months have their beginning, transit, and conclusion, as does everything from the smallest atomic particle to the largest universal structure. All is subject to the forces of creation, maintenance, and destruction. The same is true for the content of our moments, which sequentially arrive, stay, and go. 
We may be sitting quietly when a thought shows up that after a while transforms into something else and then a little while later fades from view. In everything we experience, these three states are our constant companions, and everyone can notice this. How these steps take place and what guides them, however, may not yet be apparent. What is certain is that we must be paying attention. As I continued to explore the nature of these three states, there were many days when I would lie on my couch to notice what impulse was stirring inside. Sometimes it was to get some water, to change the position of my body, take a nap, or go for a walk but I would not allow myself to take action, yet. I would notice and accept the impulse by thinking, I notice, acknowledge, and accept the impulse to move, drink, walk, talk, etc. Many times I found that by simply doing this, it dissolved to be replaced by another. On the other hand, if it returned a second and third time, and yet felt freeing and not binding, I would get off my ass and do as requested. If on my way to fulfill its directive, something changed about it, I would start all over again by accepting that new impulse as my way to reassess what to do next. Repeating this process many times taught me that my thoughts, emotions, and sensations were not inherently positive or negative or good or bad, but were actually undecided, even innocent. It was how I received them that resulted in the qualities I encountered. More specifically, it was the negate activity of not accepting that resulted in their seemingly negative quality. I know this is true because whenever I accepted an impulse, even if I had first rejected it, the negative association would dissolve before the next impulse appeared from out of the stillness. To better understand this, I decided once again to pay very close attention to my breath as it moved in and out of my body. I did this to steady my attention so that over time, I was able to become so still that I could actually discern the movement of an impulse in my mind before it meant anything. Just as one might notice the stirring of a ripple in a still pond or see a flicker of movement from the corner of their eye, merely for the fact that it was moving, I recognized that what would become my next experience originally had no quality or allegiance to meaning anything. The wave of its movement was devoid of any quality until my mind focused on it. But the instant my attention shifted from the breath to the movement, a distinct thought, emotion, or sensation was experienced which informed me about what I could now know, feel, think, or sense. What truly blew my mind was that this was an automatic process that worked best to the extent that I could cooperate with it. I was to understand that the more I participated by noticing, acknowledging, and accepting, I would never become so lost that the guidance of the moment couldn't inform me. The challenge, however, was to remember that my guidance never went anywhere. It was my constant companion that never, ever left me. It was only to the extent that my attention shifted away from the present moment that I would forget to accept its contents and then feel abandoned or lost. To many, this truth may not seem noteworthy, but for me to recognize how guidance existed inside each moment on the basis of how I accepted was like being rescued. I say this because I had looked for guidance in books, techniques, and the experience of others for years without ever learning how to identify their existence inside my life. In its place, I could only imagine what they felt like, which only served to erode my ability to know what was true for me. I'm not suggesting that others are without insight and knowledge. It's just that I never knew what others really meant by what they said or did. How could I? All of it was subject to my interpretation and the meaning made by how well I accepted. But now I understood that there was no inherent meaning in anything in the world apart from that which I gave it. None of life 
nor any of its experiences came with an instruction manual that read, When you experience a magenta sunset on a Sunday afternoon, you are to feel a deep ache in your heart, a sighing in your exhalation, along with an intense feeling of love for those around you. If life had inherent meaning, everyone's would be the same, but it isn't. Or at least we have no way of knowing for certain. It's up to us to decide what stuff means. It's always been that way. Part of coming to terms with this required that I accept the fact that in providing meaning to the events of my life, when they possessed none of themselves, I was the source of my own discomfort. Every time I resisted what was going on in my life, I had self-generated the meaning that made my life miserable. The nature of my circumstances did not make the misery I experienced in the same way that not understanding what the VP at Atari was talking about had not been the cause of my struggle. In the same way, nothing that ever happened to me meant I was a success, failure, martyr, or saint. I was just a person having his experience of the world. That's what any history is after all, a story of his experience. In fact, all the information we learn from others, be it through books, friends, or the cultures in which we live, is nothing but a commentary on the artifacts of meaning that others have made to navigate their world. Just like them, I was the only one who provided meaning to the circumstances of my life. But the question remains, if I'm not authoring my life and only make meaning on the basis of how I accept, then what is true about my thoughts and emotions and where do they come from? Also, how can I know they are connected to everything else that's important to me? I ask this because there's no point in arriving at my truth of the moment only to find that it conflicted with everything outside of it. All of it had to fit together so that what was true in this now was also part of the truth of the next and the next, as well as the larger truth of the eternal now. As I continued to mull this question over in my mind, I did so from the silence of meditation and while taking walks to observe the trees, plants, stars, and sky. Each time I am unable to escape the notion that since nature is responsible for the orderly movement of the natural world, it must be responsible for the orderly movement of thought and emotion in my internal world as well. After all, wasn't I part of nature too? Didn't everything that I experienced on the inside have its beginning, middle, and end, just like all the stuff on the outside? I was no more the cause of what moved in and out of my experience than electrons, planets, solar systems, and galaxies were of the forces that motivated them. The only difference is that I assumed that I was the force behind the expressions of my nature when I was not, and what electrons assumed, I could only imagine. Then I started thinking about the word nature and how it is used quite liberally in our culture, especially in reference to the nature of the moment, person, job, situation, law, business, etc. Clearly the word is very flexible, but not its essential meaning, because it always referred to the same ineffable thing. This led me to conclude that there was only one nature that permeated everything, which only appeared different, depending upon the place from which we viewed it. That was why whenever I studied nature, no matter where I stood, all I could ever feel was my Gary nature, inside of which the effects of Mother Nature displayed themselves. I could not feel Mother Nature apart from my own, and there did not seem to be a line or boundary separating my nature and Mother Nature. So one day I decided they must be the same, with the only difference being that my nature was how the universe felt from my point of view, and what we mean by nature or Mother Nature was the experience of how the universe felt from its point of view. One was my point of view looking out into the universe, and the other was the view of point of the universe 
looking back into me. It was in this way that I first began to comprehend my experience on the bus at the age of 17. The entire universe then became for me like a vast cosmic intelligence, where the source, course, and goal of all minerals, plants, animals, and people, the orbits and trajectories of atomic particles, planets, solar systems, stars, and galaxies, were a complexity that no earthly computer could ever calculate. Yet somehow all of it was instantly correlated, synthesized, and distributed to each place and possible point of view every single instant on the basis of what it feels to simply be who we are. Could this be what Albert Einstein was referring to when he said that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible? Seeing this more and more clearly, I was coming to the understanding that everything was already perfectly organized, and to the extent that I noticed, acknowledged, and accepted my self-arising impulses, my life would become more peaceful and powerful. Furthermore, were I to look only to the truth that I felt in each moment, I would become increasingly aligned with the intelligence at work in the universe in general, and my life in particular. But first, I needed to surrender to the inevitability of the present moment, and I might as well start right now. In the face of my current predicament, with so much fear strangling the flow of my life, accomplishing this seemed not only challenging, but next to impossible. Even as I sought through reason and breath to discern the next step, again and again my mind rebelled from the calm of the moment, freaking out at each imagined future. But I persevered as ugly judgments and loathing sediments came wave after wave to the surface of my mind amidst the calm and still voice that directed me to the next moment. In my ongoing efforts to discern guidance free from fear, I decided on a three-time rule. Whenever an impulse came, I would notice, acknowledge, and accept it. Whether it dissolved, transformed, or remained, I would do nothing as I waited to see what would happen next. Then, only if it came two more times, would I actually do anything about it. So while lying on my couch, if the impulse came to scratch my face, move my arm, or get some water, I would do nothing until the impulse had come twice more and the quality of the impulse was charming and freeing. I was learning that in order to be guided by the content of my moment, it was not sufficient that the impulse merely be there. I also had to feel good about them, which meant that it could also not harm or injure another. In this way, I found my path to freedom rested in my ability to discern the difference between those impulses that distracted with discord and those that attracted me with accord. Even so, I still struggled to be present in the face of the fear that I would soon be broke or homeless. Seeking an escape from the possibility of such an outcome, I would take a long, deep conscious breath in, and after exhaling, inquire what I felt to do now. Frequently confused by the impulse to take a walk, a nap, or get some exercise, if the guidance felt charming, gentle, or peaceful, I did what I was told. Despite the certainty with which I now offer my path of self-inquiry, I was still on shaky ground and constantly looking for evidence to support what I had been shown. It was during this time that I was directed to pieces of knowledge sequestered in various books. One moment I would be doing my thing, and then out of the blue a thought would pop into my mind to look in a certain book. One of those books was A Course in Miracle, where in the Manual for Teachers I found confirmation that whenever one confuses a belief for reality, some pinch or discord would be felt. If he senses even the faintest hint of irritation in himself as he responds to anyone, let him instantly realize that he has made an interpretation that is not true, 
then let him turn within to his eternal guide and let him judge what the response should be. This was amazing to me. Not only does the present moment contain guidance, but it's also hardwired into our ability to discern belief, opinion, and assumption from reality on the basis of how we feel. It's not just that a belief is not the same as truth that is of importance here. What's most important is that whenever we confuse or mistake a belief, assumption, opinion, or interpretation as truth, we will experience some form of discord to inform us of the mistake we have just made. As a person who was interested in learning to live my life better, this piece of information confirmed what I had experienced as true. The guidance each of us requires to navigate reality was embedded in how it feels to be us, which meant that it was as close to us as anything can be. And it was with this understanding that I set myself the task of perceiving even the slightest discord, after which I would trace the activity of my thinking and believing to discover what I had confused as truth. What was the thought that I just confused as being the reality? What's actually true right now? Often it felt very much like trying to find a needle in a haystack, but by being persistent, I would eventually come upon the belief that I confused for what was real, and whenever this happened, I would immediately feel free and light, no longer burdened with having to carry the weight of my prior mistake. As I progressed in my ability to discern beliefs from reality, I became insatiable with the need to break apart words to find their true meanings. I would consider words like belief, communication, temporal, desire, authority, authentic, profound, profess, along with their prefixes and suffixes, com, con, pro, found, temp, to see how their use in other words were able to alter or retain meaning in the same way that plus, minus, multiplication, and division symbols were operators in mathematical equations. My favorite insight occurred while playing with the words knower, knowing, known, and knowledge, because in no other grouping of words did now feature so prominently in the process of how we navigate life. First, we are the knower who exists in the now, through which we experience our process of knowing in the now that delivers us to the known also in the now. This process is what we call the acquisition of knowledge, which, you guessed it, also happens in the now. Clearly, now was essential to all of it.